I want to tell you a story about a man named Samuel Higby. Samuel Higby was a deacon of the Second Congregational Church in Milford, Connecticut in the early 1800s. Higby was a man who loved God. He loved the Bible. And he took what the Bible said very seriously in his life, in his church, and in his community. One Sunday morning, a carriage and company of horses was coming quickly through the town of Milford, and Higby went out into the middle of the road, and he stopped them. You see, Higby was convinced that the Bible taught that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. He, he, was, he believed that the Bible taught that any work or any traveling on Sunday is a sin against God. So he made the caravan stop in the middle of the street. He found out that the occupant of the carriage was Aaron Burr, the vice president of the United States, who said he had to on urgent business and he had to get to Philadelphia immediately. Samuel Higby didn't care. That made no difference for him that he was the vice president. He made the vice president stay in town until the Sabbath ended at sundown. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine Dave Mulkey going on Highway 41 this morning? Well, maybe not this morning. There's not that much traffic. But on a Sunday morning, here's Dave Mulkey on a Highway 41 going all Gandalf the Gray. You shall not pass. Can you imagine him stopping a Secret Service caravan carrying Vice President Pence and him saying, I don't care who you are. You don't get to visit Yosemite today. Today is the Sabbath. <laughs> Here's the important question from this story. Was Deacon Higby right? You have to admire his conviction. If the Bible really teaches that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, then Higby it was right in his desire to honor God by keeping himself and by keeping his community from the sin of any work on the Sabbath. If Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, we would be called to do the same. Not just stop traffic on 41, but we would be called to repent and to call others to repentance of sins such as mowing your lawn on, on Sunday or of cooking a meal on Sunday or picking up sticks in your yard that fell down from the storm. If, if, Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, that would all be what we're called to do. But if Higby's wrong and Sunday's not the Christian Sabbath, does that mean Sunday is just like any other day of the week? Is Sunday just another day off to get things done on the weekend as long as I punch my clock and put my hour and a half at church? Are those the only two options for the Christian? Are those the only two ways we can think about Sunday? How do we biblically think about Sundays in a biblical way that honors the God we love, that honors the God who saved us, saved us that honors the God who gave us eternal life? We're in a series right now on church basics. And in February, we're looking at these questions of why do we do what we're doing as a church? Not because of experience or tradition or that's what our church does, but what does the Bible say that we're supposed to do? And so we want to, I want to ask, and we want to ask the question this morning, is what should we as Christians think about Sunday? How should we think biblically about this day? Uh, Pastor and Professor Donald Whitney has written very helpfully on this subject. I'd recommend, I took a lot of material because he, he's biblical, and I think uh, does an excellent job in his book, Simplify Your Spiritual Life. And he notes that most of us Christians just want a list, right? What can I do and what can't I do? 
right? That's, that's what the Old Testament Israel had. You can do this. You can't do that. Just give me the list. But that's not what the, the Bible's telling us. The Bible's not just about a list. The Bible starts the question of what, what is Sunday? Well, actually, we have to start with the question of what is the Sabbath in the Bible? And what is the significance of the Sabbath for us as Christians, for us as New Covenant believers? And what does that mean for what we should do with our Sundays? So let's start by looking this together. Let's look at what the Word of God says this morning about this subject. And let's start by looking at what Sunday is not. Let's start by looking at what Sunday is not. Let's look about the new covenant fulfillment of the Sabbath day. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. In front of your Bible, Genesis, then Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. You see, in the Old Testament, it was very clear to the Jewish people that they were not to work on the Sabbath. It was literally written in stone, right? Thou, and the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots right? The fourth commandment, you find the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and the fourth commandment is this. Listen to this in verses 8 through 11, where God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner that, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Israel would literally work for six days, but on the seventh day of the week, which by the way, the seventh day of the week is what day? Saturday. So the Jewish Sabbath is Saturday. So on Saturday they would rest from their work and worship God. Not even their animals were allowed to go and do work. And this followed God's pattern of creation. That although God didn't need to rest, on the seventh day he rested as a symbol of his finished work, and his people were called to do the same. In fact, later in the Old Testament, in Exodus 31 and Ezekiel 20, we see that the Sabbath was a special sign, that, 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 that Israel had a special relationship, a special covenant with God. While the rest of the nations were working on Saturday, Israel rested as a sign of that relationship they had with God. Actually, the Romans noticed this. You see in first century Roman writings that they noticed that the Jews would not work on Saturday and they would call the Jews lazy because they didn't work as hard as everyone else. They took a whole day off. In fact, one Roman satire writer said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it lazy. It, 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 but Israel took these, these regulations very seriously. In fact, if you read that during the, the Maccabean Revolt, uh, that, 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 that during the, the, the fights with the, the, uh, with the, the, the Greeks and the Maccabean revolt, some Jews would actually refuse to defend themselves if they were attacked on the Sabbath. And Beatty already comes in, it's the Sabbath, I just can't do anything. And they literally let themselves be killed so that they would not work on the Sabbath. In fact, if you were visiting Israel yesterday, if you had taken a plane flight because you wanted to avoid all the snow we had, and you were in, in Israel visiting on yesterday, which is Saturday, the Sabbath or Shabbat, this is what you'd find, that during the day the restaurants are closed and the shops are closed and the, uh, and, and every, the stores are closed and people are observing the Sabbath. I, I actually remember that one of the few, I, I lived in Israel for a time and when I, I remember living over there, one of the first weeks that I was there, I didn't quite understand that that's what was going to happen, right? And so Saturday comes, you're a bachelor, you don't quite have meals planned, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's lunchtime and you don't have a meal. So what do you do as a bachelor? You order a pizza, right? The problem is you call the pizza shops and they're closed because it's the Sabbath. 
right? So all the shops are closed. All the restaurants are closed. That's okay. We'll just get a frozen pizza, right? But the pizza parlor is closed. You just get a frozen pizza. That's what bachelors do. Here's the problem. All the stores are closed because it's the Sabbath. I mean, everything's closed. Everything's shut down in Israel even today or yesterday, still in these days for the Sabbath. I remember that when the Sabbath was finally over, it was like one of the best meals I've ever eaten, right? It's like, oh, food, yes. But you see that Israel took these laws seriously. They still do today. Then throughout the Old Testament, we see that, that, that God gave more regulations about what the Sabbath resting was entailing, that Israel was not allowed to kindle a fire, that they were not allowed to cook a meal. They were not even allowed to pick up sticks off the ground. That was work on the Sabbath. In fact, if you're in Exodus, turn over to Numbers. And look how seriously God took the Sabbath over in Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. And I want to read this to you of, of this account of, of, of what happened on the Sabbath. Numbers chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 32 through 36, where Moses tells us this. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Can we think about what just happened here? I mean, just, just here's a guy, he's picking up sticks, right? He's picking up sticks, he's gathering sticks, probably to make sure he has a fire at night. But it was the Sabbath, and doing so on the Sabbath of such a sin was, the penalty was what? Death was literally being stoned with stones. And it wasn't just that Israel had some archaic, strict regulations about this, but because the person who directed this was who? God. God himself took the Sabbath this seriously. The question we should ask is why? Why was the Sabbath so significant? Why was it so serious? And if it was so significant in the Old Testament, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for us as Christians, as New Covenant believers? Because if we think about the other Ten Commandments or the other Nine Commandments, we're still supposed to keep those, right? We see in the New Testament that we're still supposed to have no other gods, no idols. We're not to take the Lord's name in vain. We're to honor our parents, not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, and not bear false witness, right? We, we follow all of those. So why not the Sabbath? That, that even though Christ has fulfilled the law for us, we see that to live and follow Christ, which, which is called the law of Christ, 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 6, that we see other, these other commandments repeated of this is what it means to follow Christ. We see the other nine commandments in the New Testament, but nowhere in the New Testament do we see believers commanded to keep the Sabbath. In fact, you never read of any Christian post-Pentecost ever observing the Sabbath. We, we never read of any Jewish Christian in the New Testament teaching a Gentile Christian how to observe the Sabbath. It's just not there. But what does the New Testament say about the Sabbath? Turn over to the New Testament. Turn to Colossians. Turn over to Colossians. Steve read this for this, us earlier this morning, but I want to focus particularly on just two verses, verses 16 and 17. Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17. And listen how Paul describes the Sabbath, where he says this. 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why? Here he answers this. These, including the Sabbath, are a what? Shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the substance of that shadow belongs to Christ. So the Sabbath is a shadow. It's a shadow that's pointing to the thing that makes the shadow, the thing the shadow points to, that's to Christ. It's kind of like some days my boys are waiting for me to get home from work because they're waiting for Daddy to come home to have lightsaber battles. Isaac's had a lightsaber for a while. We got one for Gus for for Christmas, and it's lightsaber battle time when Daddy comes home. And and sometimes they hear the garage or they hear the car, and they go up to the windows, and they start to see my shadow come around the corner before they can see me, Right? And they know from the size of that shadow, it's, it's not someone else, it's not a deer, it's daddy. And they see the shadow, and that shadow starts to get them excited, right? Why? Because the shadow is a symbol that what's happening? Daddy's coming home. It's lightsaber time, right? But you know what? Once I actually walk through the doors, once daddy's actually home, they don't care about the shadow anymore, Right? The shadow only pointed to the actual substance. The shadow only pointed to the greater reality that daddy's home and it's time to play lightsabers, right? That's the point of the shadow. And that's what Paul is saying here about the Sabbath. The Sabbath and the command to rest on the Sabbath was a shadow of the things to come. It was a picture pointing to Jesus. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there were various people that were pointing to Jesus. There was Moses and David. There were pictures of a greater Moses and a greater David that's coming to Savior, to be a Savior. There's, there's things in the Old Testament, like the bronze serpent that Moses hold, held up, or like the temple. There were pictures of the greater one that was lifted up and the greater temple to come in Jesus. There's events in the Old Testament, like the Exodus, which is the picture of the greater Exodus to come, which is the, the deliverance that Jesus would bring us. And it's the same with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a shadow pointing to Jesus. But here's the question. Yes, Jesus, okay, if the Sabbath's a shadow pointing to Jesus, how does it point to Jesus? What about Jesus does the Sabbath point to? Well, well, let's look at another New Testament verse on the Sabbath. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. Flip over to your right from from Colossians. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And in this this chapter, in Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews, you're going to see that there's this predominant theme where he's urging his readers to make sure that we're diligent to enter God's rest. It's all about God's rest. That's a metaphor for eternal life or for heaven. I remember being in seminary, and I had a, uh, I had a guy in my class, and I got to know him somewhat. We were walking back from lunch, and he was a, a, a brother who, he was a bivocational pastor, which means he worked full-time, and he pastored a church on the side. He was in seminary full-time, and, I, and if I remember, he had five or six children all at home at the time. And I remember just going, you got to tell me, how do you do this? How is this possible? And I remember just, he was a, a tall African-American man, and he, he had this deep voice. And I remember him telling me, I understand what it means when the Bible talks about heaven as rest. I'm like, yeah, I bet you do. And, but that's what the Bible talk, is talking about heaven, that, that we need to enter God's rest. And Hebrews is saying it's not just the Old Testament saints that got to enter God's rest, that there's a rest that still remains and is available for the people of God today. That's verses 6 and 7. 
that in verse 8, it says that in the Old Testament, Joshua gave the people rest. He gave them rest from God's enemies. He gave them rest in the land so that in the book of Joshua, it says that God gave them rest on every side. But Hebrews is saying, but that wasn't the final rest. Yes, that they defeated God's enemies. Yes, they were in the land, but they weren't back to Eden yet. It wasn't heaven yet. That, that, that picture of, of the Israel coming into the land was a picture of a greater rest to come, the rest that would come through Jesus Christ. And what is this rest that God offers us today? How do we experience this rest? Well, look at Hebrews verse, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, and look how it describes this rest, where it says, so, there, so, so then, or therefore, in light of all that, verse 9, says, so then there remains a Sabbath, rest for the people of God. There's a Sabbath. There is a Christian Sabbath. There is a Sabbath we're supposed to experience. But listen what it is here. For, for here's what it is. Whoever has entered God's rest, we enter God's rest, we experience eternal life, has rested from his works as God did from his. You see, there is a Sabbath we can experience as Christians, but it's not about a day of the week. How do we experience this Christian Sabbath? We, we enter God's rest by resting from our works. That God lays the model for that. See, God finished all the works. God worked in creation. It was finished, and he rested. Jesus on the cross finished the work of the new creation, said it is finished, and he rested. All the work's done. So we need to enter his rest. That's our Sabbath rest. We enter his rest when we rest from our works, when we realize God did all the work for us. I, I'm, I'm going to rest from any works I'm going to try to do to make myself right before God because God's already done that for me. That's what the Christian Sabbath is. It's not about a day of the week. It's about resting from trying to earn our way to God and realizing that Jesus did all the work for us. We can never be good enough on ourselves for ourselves. Jesus paid for our sins. He earned our righteousness. He gave us the salvation that we can never earn or deserve. Jesus completed the work. It is finished. And how do we respond? The Sabbath rest for the believer is we rest in his work and rest and trust on what he has done for us. That's what we call faith. That's what the Bible calls faith. In fact, there's a story told about a missionary named John Patton he was a missionary to the New Hebrides Isles. And, and, and he was trying to figure out how to translate the Bible into the native tongue. Here's the problem. The native language had no word for faith. Let me ask you, how do you translate the New Testament without the word faith? It's pretty tough, right? How do you translate the gospel without the word faith? Well, one day the story is that, that Patton and a bunch of his friends were out, or native friends were out on a big hunt. They, they shot this huge deer. And they had to carry this deer back all the way through these mountain trails. And when they finally got back home, they just threw the deer on the deck of the house and they laid themselves on chairs, just exhausted. And one of his friends said in the native tongue, it is so good to throw that down and lay yourself out and stretch here. And Patton said, that's it. Say that again. That's the idea of faith. That's the word, the word that he would use for faith. It's to unload your burdens on Christ and to rest in his work for you. That's what the Sabbath was pointing to. Do you see why the, in the Old Testament, God took the Sabbath so seriously? Do you see that why even, 
any work, even a small amount of work, could not be done on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is pointing to Jesus. That's why even picking up sticks brought the death penalty because the Sabbath was a picture of Jesus. You can't add a stick to what Jesus has done for you on the cross. To add even a stick, to add any of our works to what Jesus has done, to say, yes, Jesus, you did some good things, but I have to add to that, that actually disqualifies us from the gospel. It negates that gospel. It actually rejects that gospel of grace alone that Jesus did on the cross. That any work is a spiritual death penalty because he offers us salvation by grace alone. So so do you see that for a new covenant believer, for us as Christian, the Sabbath is not about a day of the week. The Sabbath is fulfilled in the finished work of Christ. The Sabbath is a shadow that points to the substance, which is Christ. It's, we fulfill the Sabbath. You and I fulfill the Sabbath when we rest from trying to work our way to God and rest in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, if you, if you bore the snow and, and, and came to visit with us this morning, I want to say welcome, especially if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I want to welcome you because we have good news for you this morning. And that good news is very different than, than good advice. You see, every other religion in the world, every other worldview offers you good advice. Here's what you need to do to get right with God. Here's some advice about what you need to do to get to heaven. Here's some counsel about what you need to do to earn your way to be good enough and righteous enough. It's good advice. It's telling what, the responsibility is on you to do the work to make yourself right. Here's the problem. The problem is we can never be good enough. Just logically, think about that. If heaven is a perfect place, which, which we see that it is, then, then no imperfect people can be there. I got, I, I got bad news. We're all imperfect, right? So it, 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 as, as hard as I try, as good as I try to be, we still, we still sin. That's what the Bible says. We miss the mark. We fall short. We sin against other people. And more than that, we have sinned against God. And, and so we cannot save ourselves by our own efforts. There's no good advice that's good enough. But the good news is, is that the Bible doesn't give good advice. The Bible gives good news. Good news is not something that we need to do, right? News is not something we do. News is something that we have heard that's been done for us, right? That's what good news is. Good news is something that Jesus has done for us, and all that I can need to do is respond to what's already been done. That's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to earth as God in flesh, And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. For all of our imperfection, he paid the penalty for us in our place as our substitute. And and so that when we trust in him, he rose from the dead so that we would be credited his righteous life. So all of his perfection was credited to us if we would place our faith in him and repent of our sins. You see, if we try to earn our salvation, if we try to work for our salvation, if we try to be good enough, we are actually going against what he did for us. For us, saying it's complete for you. It's like walking on the wrong way of one of those people movers at the airport, right? It's like you're, you're moving, but you're not really getting where you need to go because you're actually working against what's been done. It's the same thing when we try to, 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 to do our own works to get to heaven because Jesus has done it all for us. 
And the, only, the, the key to salvation, the key to eternal life, is that we would place our trust, our faith, to rest in him and what he's done. And he offers you as a free gift, as a gift of grace. If you want to know more about this Jesus, if you want to know more about this free gift of grace, please don't leave this morning without talking to someone. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary. We'd love to tell you more about this free gift of eternal life that Jesus offers you this morning. But, but as we focus still on our question, okay, well, what, what is Sunday then? If, if the Sabbath was Saturday, first of all, and, and the Sabbath was a shadow that points to Christ's work for us, is that, we, that we need to rest in his salvation, what's the deal with getting together on Sunday? Why, what are we doing this morning? Well, now we need to look at what Sunday is. What, let's look briefly at what Sunday is. We're going to look at the New Covenant transition to the Lord's Day. You see, the Jews understood you worship on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that Jewish Christians began to worship on the first day of the week, on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. They began to worship on Sundays instead. I mean, think about that. Think if you were a Jewish Christian and that God made it very clear you worship on Saturdays. And yet the proof of the resurrection and what God has declared, the significance of that resurrection changed everything. And it wasn't just a change that the church made. This was a change that God was emphasizing himself. I asked Mary to put some scriptures on the screen so we don't have to, to turn to all these places, but they're in your notes. But just consider how every significant event by Jesus between the resurrection and Pentecost and how the biblical writers emphasize that these happen on the first day of the week. First of all, Matthew 28, Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. John 20, Jesus first appeared to his disciples after the resurrection on the first day of the week. Luke 24, Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and opened their minds to understand the scriptures and the resurrection on that very day, which was the first day of the week. Jesus first commissioned his disciples and promised the Holy Spirit on the first day of the week, John 20. At Pentecost, Jesus sent the Spirit to empower his, his disciples for witness. Pentecost, which, which occurred on if you count the days, on the first day of the week, Acts 2, 1 through 4. And we see that, that, that Jesus was emphasized that day, and we see that Jesus' followers, after being taught by Jesus, understood that that was the day that the church would begin to gather and worship. So we see the example of the church. Uh, if you look at Acts 20, verse 7, the believers in Troas gathered to break bread, communion, and, and hear the preaching of the word on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul directed the Corinthians churches to, to, to collect the offerings for the Lord's work when they regularly would gather on the, take a guess, first day of the week, right? So that, that that's when the church gathered. You see, every Sunday became a mini anniversary to remember Jesus rising victoriously from the dead. Just like we do, we do similar things, right? We celebrate birthdays, we celebrate anniversaries, we celebrate holidays to remember certain events. Well, Sunday became Resurrection Day. Sunday became Jesus' day when the church would remember and worship Jesus. You know, if you look in the Bible, you can't find an Easter celebration by the early church. You look in church history, you can't find an Easter celebration by the early church. Not until several hundred years after do you start seeing any recording of an annual Easter celebration. You know why? Every Sunday was Easter Sunday. And I've said that before, but it's important we get that, that for Christians... Every Sunday was Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday was Jesus' day. In fact, turn to Revelation chapter 1. 
Turn over to Revelation chapter 1. By the time the book of Revelation was written, by the time we get to the end of the New Testament, when the risen Lord Jesus reveals himself to the apostle John, we don't see the day called the first day of the week anymore. We don't see the day called Sunday. Look how John describes the first day of the week. Look how John describes Sunday. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. He says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. You see how John calls it? It's the Lord's day. It's not just another day. It's, it's not just a part of the weekend. It's not just Sunday. It's not just the first day of the week. It's the Lord's day. That's why from the beginning of Christianity, Believers in Jesus gathered together on the first day of the week to worship because that's Jesus' day. That's the Lord's day. And if Sunday's the Lord's day, that leads us to our important question. How should then we as Christians, how should we as new covenant believers who have trusted in Jesus, what should we do on the Lord's day? And, and the answer to this question is not about your experience or my tradition or, or, or the church's preferences. The question we want to ask, what does the Bible say about this? How does the Bible talk about Sundays? Sunday's not the Christian Sabbath. The, the, the Sabbath was fulfilled in the, in, the, in the work of Christ. So it's not a sin to go home and mow your lawn like you're going to today anyways. But the, the Sunday's not a sin to go and cook a meal. Sunday's not a sin to go and watch a ball game. But Sunday's also not just another day of the week. For what, what the Bible describes is that Sunday is not just another part of your weekend. Sunday is not just if I make an appearance at church, I'm covered. That biblically, Sunday, we need to use the term and think of the term, Sunday's the Lord's day. Today is Jesus' day. It's the Lord's day. So in light of the biblical evidence, I'm going to conclude with Donald Whitney with two principles. He offers two principles. I'm going to give them to you. I think they're helpful. Two basic principles for you if you're asking, how should I think about the Lord's day? How should I spend my Sundays? Two things. Number one, we make worship with other believers the priority on the Lord's day. Not because it's the Sabbath but because of who God is, because it's his day, and that he is a God worthy of worship. He is a God worthy of seeking. In, in fact, if you're in Revelation chapter 1, turn over to Revelation chapter 4. And we see that God, is, he is worthy of seeking. He is worthy of knowing. He is worthy of, of, of taking the time to know in all that he is. In Revelation chapter 4, we see John describe four living creatures around the throne of God. They are the closest creatures to God. There are, there's no obstruction. There's nothing in their way to see God. And look at how their reaction to God is described. Look at uh, halfway through verse 6 in Revelation chapter 4. John writes, And around the throne, the throne of God, on each side of the throne there are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. That means they see everything. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. From the moment you got up this morning, they've been singing that. From the moment you were born, They've been singing that for thousands and thousands of years. Since before the beginning of creation, they have been singing that. Why? Because God said, that's your job description. <laughs> you got these words. 
No, right? Why do they sing this? Because they can't help themselves. Because everywhere they look, they see God. And the only reaction is to be amazed at the God that they're seeing. You might go up to them someday in heaven, and you might ask them if you could get their attention. Does it ever get boring? I mean, you know, heart to heart, after a couple thousands and thousands and thousands of years, did you ever want to do anything else? You know what they'd say to you? Boring? Boring. Are you kidding me? Do you see what we see? Do you see the glorious God of the universe? How could we ever tire of being amazed at the glorious God of the universe? My friend, that, that's what makes heaven heaven because of being able to, to, to enjoy everlastingly the enjoyment of all that God is. And that's why our main priority on the Lord's Day should be to seek to worship him with other believers because of who he is, because he's worth seeking, he's worth having, he's the pearl of greatest price, he is the treasure hidden in the field. Sunday is a time where God says, I'm going to give you extra time to taste and see how good he is. We get a little preview of heaven as we gather with the church on the Lord's Day. See, because we're not just called to, to gather individually. That doesn't even make sense, right? We're, 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 it's not just about being individually worshiping and seeking God on the Lord's Day. It's about gathering with other believers. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that we can have a relationship with God individually and personally. I and you are temples of the Holy Spirit. But 1 Corinthians also says in chapter 3 that we collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a way that we experience God collectively that we cannot experience God individually. There's a way that we can seek and know God collectively that cannot be done individually. That's why we see biblical commands like Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 that says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, that, that, that it's not just about we experiencing God individually, but also collectively. We demonstrate our love for, for Christ. We demonstrate our, our need for each other as we gather and worship with the local church and taste and see how good the Lord is. But you notice in Hebrews 10, it doesn't say when we're supposed to do that, right? Actually, none of the commands of, that we're supposed to gather with one another says when. We have the command that we're supposed to do it. So how do we know when? We have the example of the early church. We have the example of the apostles who Jesus taught of when they gathered. So we see in Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16 that the example of when they did these things, when they gathered together, was on the Lord's Day. The biblical examples show us how the apostles followed the biblical commands by making worship with other believers the priority on the Lord's Day. Do you see how, how different it is from the, 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 the Lord's Day is from the Sabbath? The Sabbath, the focus was, here's what not to do. In the New Testament, the Lord's Day, the focus is on here's what you get to do, right? You get to seek God. You get to know God. You get to build up each other. You get to edify the church. And when we realize that this is how the Bible describes our activity on the Lord's Day, it should really cause us to evaluate our thinking. If I think of Sunday where it's, okay, I just got to try to give God an hour and a half when, and make my appearance every once in a while, that's not how the Bible describes it. It's the Lord's Day. It's a day where I have the opportunity, where God's saying, I'm giving you a whole day to seek and savor how good he is. To, to encourage and be encouraged by his people. 
So when we have conflict between the Lord's Day and some other activities, corporate worship and other activities, well, let me ask you this. If you have a conflict with one of your favorite hobbies and your 20th wedding anniversary, what are you going to do? Well, whatever's more important to you is going to win out, right? That, that that day is a special day for you to focus on your spouse and to focus on your, your marriage. Well, Sunday's the Lord's Day, my friend. Every Sunday is an anniversary of his resurrection. So worship should win out. We are devoted to our work. But as Christians, we're more, more devoted to Christ. We love our sports. But as Christians, we love, we love our Jesus Christ. We delight in things like vacations and hobbies. But as Christians, my chief delight in all that Jesus Christ is for me. That's the first biblical principle, that, that, that we think about spending the Lord's Day, that we would make worshiping Christ the priority. Well, what about the rest of the day? Is it just part of the weekend? I, I think there's a second principle, and I know there is if you look here as well, that we should also observe Sunday as a day uniquely for the Lord, for the Lord's Day. How should we decide what should I do on Sunday? Is it just a weekend? Well, it's the Lord's Day. That's Revelation 1.10. That's the biblical language. Think about it as the Lord's day. Saturday is our weekend. That's what ends the week, the seventh day of the week. This is the Lord's day. It's an opportunity to focus on the Lord before we start the grind of the new week. So let me ask you the question. Here's a good question as you, as you go out, maybe not going out to lunch today, maybe going home for lunch today, or as you are around the dinner table with your spouse or as, as a family tonight. Here's the question. How can we make Sunday particularly focused on the Lord? How can we taste and savor and see how good God is on the Lord's day, since it's his day? I'm not going to give you a list of, of, of directives. I'm not going to give you a box to check off, but I want to make some suggestions. Here are some suggestions how you can make the most out of your Lord's day to taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe, maybe the Lord's day is a day where you can spend extensive time in spiritual discipline. I don't know about you, but sometimes during the week it's so hard, right? You're, in your, you're doing your Bible reading or you're, you're doing your prayer and you're always watching the clock, right? Because you gotta get to, you got to get to work or the kids are going to be getting up any minute and then, then there's, no, there's no Bible reading once the kids get up, right? I mean, whatever it is, you're watching the clock and it's always, it's always so cut short. And it's like, man, if I only had time to just really spend more time with the Lord, if God would only set aside a day for me to do that, the Lord's Day, right? Maybe the Lord's Day is an opportunity for that ministry that you want to do, that the Lord's put it on your heart to do, but you never seem to have time to do. Well, God's saying, here's a whole day for you to take that time to, to plan, to pray, and to discuss. Maybe it's a church involvement that you've been wanting to get involved in. Maybe it's a church ministry that you've been thinking of starting. Maybe there's that theologically edifying book you know you've been wanting to read. It's sitting there on your shelf. You walk by it. It stares at you. It makes you feel a little guilty so you don't look at it. When, when do I have time to read that? If, if only the Lord would give me some time. Well, that's the Lord's day. Maybe, maybe you're saying, I, I, we need to have a time of family worship, a family discipleship, and, and I, I've wanted to do this. How do we start? What a better time to say, this is the Lord's day. So after dinner on Sunday nights, we're going to eat, we're going to clean up the dishes and come back to the table or come back to the couch, and we're just going to spend 15 or 20 minutes. We're going to read a short passage of Scripture. We're going to talk about it, ask some questions about it, briefly pray together, sing a song maybe, and, 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 then, and then be done. But maybe what a wonderful time, what a wonderful practice to start on Sundays. Maybe Sunday is the Lord's Day, is the opportunity for Christian hospitality, right? 
Do you ever have you ever talk with your family of, oh, we need to have that, peop, that couple over. We need to have that person over. We need to have that family over. Oh, when is there, to, when is there a time? If only God would set aside a day. It's the Lord's day. Why not use it for, for that sort of ministry and invite people from church that you need to get to know better, that, you, that need to be edified. Invite singles or couples or families over for a lunch or a, or a dinner. What a wonderful opportunity. Maybe even to invite non-Christian friends over. There's, there's a new book that I'm working through. I think it is excellent. It's by Rosaria Butterfield, and it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And her, her argument is that one of the most effective tools we have for evangelism is hospitality. That, you know, during the, and to go beyond our argument, during the, the 80s and the 90s, you go and you knock on other people's doors and you go and you share the gospel knocking on doors and that sort of thing. But today, the way that people are going to encounter the gospel is they need to come through your door. They need to see, they need to hear the gospel from your mouth. They need to see the gospel lived out in your home. And, and as you build that relationship and you build that friendship, that, that your home is one of the most effective tools you have for, for evangelism, to invite non-Christian friends over. All of these are just examples. I'm not saying that you have to do these. I'm just saying, how do we make this day a day where we can enjoy the Lord? It's not a matter of do's or don'ts, but ask questions like, does what I do on a typical Sunday help me enjoy God? When I'm done Sunday and go to work on Monday, does, does, have I refreshed my soul? Have I built up my soul? Have I tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Does, does what you do on Sunday help you enjoy the people of God? Are you enjoying real fellowship? Are you enjoying the family that God has shared with you and the people of God? Does, does the Lord they help you enjoy the blessings of God? It's not just about ministry. It's not just about reading. But enjoying, taking that time to enjoy the blessings of God. Enjoy, when's the time to enjoy a good meal with your family? When's the time to, to take that time for an afternoon walk and enjoy God's creation? Maybe not in the snow today, but in general. When, when's the time to, to enjoy that God has made us creatures who need rest? and to take a Sunday afternoon to put your feet up and take a nap. And, and thank God. Right? See, we, these are all blessings from God, and we should enjoy what God has done, to, to, to taste and see how good God is on the Lord's day to prepare us for the grind of the week to come. You see, Deacon Samuel Higby's actions in Milford, they were unnecessary, but his heart's desire that people would seek and know God was commendable. So as I conclude, I want to encourage you to think, does the typical use of your time on the Lord's Day rob you of the joy and the blessings that might be yours to start each new week? I, I want to end with one more quote from Donald Whitney's book. I'll, I'll paraphrase him when he says this. Imagine living to, age, living to age 70. Imagine you spent every Lord's Day enjoying the presence of God, enjoying the people of God, enjoying the blessings of God. You would experience 10 years seeking and savoring and worshiping God. Ten years of enjoying God's goodness. Ten years of reading good books. Ten years of playing with your children and grandchildren, of taking walks, of enjoying fellowship, of taking naps. Does that sound like a burden to you? Does that sound like a weight to you? People would dream of a life like that. And it's the kind of life that you enjoy when you celebrate the Lord's Day as he designed where you can say, I've got a thousand things on my to-do list, but I don't have to do them today because today is the Lord's day. Today is a gift to enjoy the Lord, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you are a good God. You're a good God who knows what we need. You know that we are finite, 
You know that we are finite in our strength. You know that we are finite in our, our capacity. You know that we are finite in, in, in just even, even in our, our spirituality, and we need to be refreshed. Thank you that you know what we need and that, that you've designed this, this day, Lord, not as a, a rule to keep, but as a, a day that you have gifted us to enjoy, to enjoy to knowing you in a greater way of worshiping you, to enjoy being with your people and being edified and built up by your people, to enjoy your blessings. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to truly, Lord, live this as the Lord's day, as your day, in a way that glorifies you, that edifies our own hearts, Lord. And, 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 and uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.